Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. Good morning. It is good to be with you. Thank you. Mike Dean on the mic stand. <laughs> it is good to be with you this morning, Eastside. Uh, we always love being able to come and be with you. Uh, it was what, eight years ago that a group of us gathered in our living room to dream about planting Eastside. And so it's so fun to come to your building uh, to to be with this congregation. Um, 23 years ago, we gathered in our living room to plant Imago downtown. And so uh, over the 23 years that we've been uh, a church, we've gotten to plant 17 churches. And uh, yeah, God's been really gracious to us. And so it's something that by God's grace, we'll get to keep doing churches that are willing to be prophetic and as well be the faithful presence of Jesus uh, in, in their cities. Well, we are in the middle of Advent and uh, we are in the middle of doing something that, that Imago uh, as a church has been doing for 15 years called Advent Conspiracy. And I got a few slides that I want to show you. Uh, and after I finish with the slides, you could take them down. Essentially, what we're going to talk today about is resisting the empire. And you're probably wondering how I got that out of the story of the beautiful birth of baby Jesus. But, but you'll see that it's in there. Um, the way that we started Advent Conspiracy is an interesting story. There, uh, there are three pastors, and we had a friend who was bohemian, uh, meaning he's from the Bahamas, which is a great friend to have, by the way, because you get to go see that friend. And so he pastored in the Bahamas, and we were uh, with him. In one January, just getting done with sort of preaching about Chris Christ at Christmas and sort of how impotent the message of Christ at Christmas is in America. That we are preaching one of the greatest theological truths in uh, all of theology, all of the story of Scripture. But as a people, we are worn out. We are, like, overspent. Let's go to the next slide, right? We're, we're anxious. It's a hectic season. And so everybody is just frazzled, and it drowns out our story, which is what Christmas is, by the way. It's our story. It's the church's story. Now, what we also saw happening is the church sort of rising up to say, this is our story, but we weren't, the church wasn't pushing back on any of the idols of our culture. They were just demanding we say things like Merry Christmas, which to us was just really weird, which I don't, because I don't think the, the poor checkout girl who says Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas is really persecuting me. Just, just, for, just for the record, I don't feel persecuted. Like when you look, if you read Voice of the Martyrs, my name won't show up. 
because I went to a store and they said, happy holidays. So we began to imagine what would it look like to enter our story together. We began to imagine what would it mean to take our story back. And so the four of us uh, got this sort of wild idea and it, and it pushed us into the story, into the theology, and, and asked the question, how would we do this? Eugene Peterson talks about how not only are we to read the scriptures, but we read the scriptures to get the scriptures lived. And so out of the story, thinking of a modern day practice to the story of Christ coming into the world, we came up with those four tenets, spend less, give more, meaning give relationally. When God wanted to give us a gift, he didn't send us plastic toys he gave us a son right we spend less in in resisting an empire of consumerism so that we have more to redistribute to those who jesus said if you want to love me love them and so we spend less so we could give more of ourselves And then with the money we don't spend, we can love all. We can actually take our humanity, take what we have to sacrifice in order to display God's love. And all of that is only to help us worship fully, right? This is simply a discipleship scheme to get us to live like radical disciples for four weeks. That's all it is. Um, but it works, so, and it's kind of cool. So we tried it. We tried it 15 years ago. We tried it. Four churches, we did it. Uh, we thought, who knows what would happen, but let's try it. We got nothing to lose. And, and those four churches raised half a million dollars. Uh, half a million dollars, yeah. And together, over the next four years, we... Um, with Living Water, this organization, and leaders in Liberia were able to solve the water crisis in an entire region of Liberia called Mount Barclay. And we were getting back these videos of people who had churches and schools and businesses because of clean water in June because we didn't buy stuff that we couldn't remember not buying. So the next year we said, well, what if we invited other people to join us, like other churches, and see what happens? And Jeannie jumped in and helped, and we literally spent $200 on a website. So you can imagine how amazing that website was. It was incredible. (laughs) And we thought maybe we'd get like 50 churches to jump on and join us. And we ended up that year getting 1,700 churches in 35 countries. Yeah, that first year was crazy. And so what started um, really with just this idea became just one of these things that God took and said this, there's nothing magical about it. It just was what the church needed to to be the church, right? These these sort of handles to said, this is how we can live our story. Uh, We wrote the book. 
only to kind of catechize the story because we saw other churches that were using it to like uh, raise money for their building program. And we were like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's empire, not kingdom. This is about loving all. We saw so many beautiful, crazy stories come out of those first years. We did see a church that was in a building campaign and for their advent, they raised funds for the church down the street that was in a building campaign. Right? We saw these radical acts of the church being the church in these really prophetic and beautiful ways. Uh, we, we made sure that, that, that it wasn't like an organization. And so we have people come up all the time and said, you didn't start Advent Conspiracy, our church did. And we're stoked about that. Because we want the church to be the church. Amen? Yeah. And so that's what we began 15 years ago on this sort of crazy ride. Because we believe that this is a better story. But if we, do, if we miss today's point, we really do miss the whole sense of the propheticness of what living into the story of Christ is about. And it is about resisting the empire. That when Jesus comes as the world's king, he comes subverting the power of the false kings and the false empires of his day. And we see this most strongly in Matthew's gospel. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Um, we're going to kind of bounce around in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew, uh, most more than any other gospel writers, deals with the political ramifications of Christ's birth. His purpose in writing is to show that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of God's King, God's Messiah. And he quotes the Old Testament more than any other writer in the New Testament. And he adds nine additional proofs to make his point. Matthew goes to great extremes. In Matthew 1.1, we, we hear his point when he starts the genealogy of Jesus. I know most of us like read the Bible and we get to the genealogies and that, that we're not interested in genealogies. And I am with you. Uh, they're, they're not a lot of fun. But if you read genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, it's super fascinating. Because there are only three women mentioned. All Gentiles. All women who were sort of used by men. Women who, if you were the pure religious sort of Pharisees of the day, shouldn't have been in that genealogy and yet they're there Matthew makes sure they're there because this isn't the king who has come for the pure religious line of Israel but this is the king who has come for all people so Matthew 1 1 says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David the son of Abraham, these three 
titles that are really important to understanding the kingship, the, the, the royal title of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the one who's going to save the world, that he's David's son, the one that was promised that would come and rule on David's throne forever. And he's the son of Abraham. He's the seed that was promised that would bless all nations throughout the world. The one whom God said he would be with us forever. And so when you go to Matthew 1.18, you have this angelic announcement to Joseph. And Joseph uh, realizes that uh, Mary's pregnant, this teenage a girl that he is betrothed to, and he's a good guy, so he's like, I'll just divorce her. I don't want to disgrace her. And the angel shows up as you know the story. But I want you to hear what the angel calls Jesus. Hear those titles come through in the story. In verse 20, but after he had considered this, divorcing Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, son of David. Now, that's really important to understand that, the, that in the genealogy, because Rome had occupied uh, Israel at the time, because Herod had set up as a puppet king for Caesar, Israel didn't have their true king on the true throne of Israel. But had there been a throne in Israel, Jesus had the right to that throne. Just as you go through the genealogies of David and then Solomon and on and on it goes, Jesus had the right to the throne. Joseph would have had the right to the throne. He is the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He is also Jesus, the Savior. He is Messiah. So you see again that title in Genesis 1.1, he is the Messiah. He is the one who will save us from our sins, and he is also Emmanuel, God with us. That is the title of Abraham's covenant people, the God who is with us. And so you see Matthew's intent beginning immediately after the genealogy. He's saying, I want you to know that this is the world's king. The son of David, son of God, savior, liberator of the world. And we miss the political implications involved in what God is up to here. We miss it because very much the Bible has been domesticated to us. We miss it because we twist sort of what those political implications might be. It's hard for us to understand kings and thrones when we live in a democracy. But Mary and Joseph did not miss the political implications. 
If you read Mary's song, when the angel announces to her that she will give birth to the Messiah, you hear within her words a very clear understanding that she understands God's reign and rule has come to overthrow oppression, to overthrow rulers, to overthrow kings. That she understands it through the lens of political regimes, not purely political, but not in the absence of political motif. And the church needs to understand and recover our prophetic voice, particularly around the Advent story. We have been so consumed by our own consumerism that we can hardly imagine another story that doesn't equate that the amount of money I spend on someone at Christmas equals the amount of love I have for them. And how horrible is that? That a parent is burdened with, I didn't spend enough on this child, so they're not going to feel my love for them. Like that is of the pit of hell. Advent is a time when we are called to join Jesus in his own subversive coming by refusing to be bought by buying by refusing to buy what we can't afford, refusing to keep what's not ours for ourselves that was meant to be giving away. And this baby Jesus is a radical revolutionary, not this sweet baby in the manger scenes that we see, so tender and mild. This is a baby that keeps kings awake at night, that causes the most powerful rulers in his day, anxiety, that, that Herod cannot sleep because this baby's born. Do you see how we've twisted it? Yeah. And we're just like, the joy to the world, and it's all fun and games, but we're being bought. We're being bought. Because you see, in America, you know, one of the things that, that I've learned over these last 15 years you know, we, because we don't have a king, it really isn't going to affect whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president. Uh, they're not threatened by Jesus for the most part. But you know who is king in America? The economy is king. That's our king. Last year at Christmas... Americans spent $886.7 billion at Christmas. $886 billion. This year, it is estimated that we will spend between $943 and $960 billion on Christmas. We're getting close to $1 trillion. To put it in perspective, to solve the world water crisis, just one issue, it would cost between 20 and $30 billion. That is 2 to 3%. But we can't do it. If, however, Black Friday doesn't become black, 
And what I mean by that is the reason we call it Black Friday is because that's the time of year that we go buy stuff and that shops go from running in the red in their books to running in the black. But if that doesn't happen, if we don't spend the $986 billion, you could hear some king somewhere, some economist somewhere, saying we need to kill the baby. Right? That is not outside the realm of possibility because the economy is king. Have you ever heard cash is king? Yeah, you've heard that. The context is different. We don't have Herod, but we still have kings, right? And we still have idols. And I'm not saying we don't spend. I'm not saying we don't buy presents. And if you own a business, I pray that God blesses that business. So please hear me. But what I'm saying is, is that we have been bought to think that we should spend that much money while we let brothers and sisters in Africa and Guatemala and other parts of the world suffer so we can buy crap that we won't remember we bought in six months. All in the name of worshiping Jesus? That's a weird way to celebrate uh, a guy that was sacrificed on the cross, that lived as a homeless man. and died for our sins. So I want to tell you the story of two kings. The first king is Herod. Who was Herod? Because Herod is the one who Jesus' birth caused a lot of anxiety to. Can we go back to the slide before that? Yeah. Uh, Can you read that okay? So Matthew's gospel specifically highlights this overlooked clash between this child king and the self-proclaimed king of the Jews. Herod is known as a brutal tyrant of a leader. He killed his wife when he thought she threatened uh, his power. He killed two of his own sons when he thought that they were vying for his throne. He had no issues. And he takes the throne of Israel through marriages and political alliances and uh, in, in sort of schmoozing Caesar. It's all politics. He isn't the rightful uh, ruler of God's people. And so he's never fully accepted by the Jew- Jewish people. But there's something about Jesus' birth that he believes to be a true threat to his throne because Jesus as we see he has a true throne right and when we come to Matthew 2 1 through 6 we see Herod's response when he's fooled by the Magi and then it results in the entire murder of a population of boys look with me at Matthew 2 verses 1 through 6 it says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea During the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. 
and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, one who will shepherd my people Israel. And that word for disturbed can be anxious, it can be frustrated, it can be like the up at night kind of thing. Herod is pacing the halls because of a teenage mom who is having a baby somewhere in a a cave in the hillside among sheep and cows because nobody will let them into like a, a hotel room. It's fascinating. And he feels threatened. And he is a true threat. Why? Because he is the true king, not only of Israel, but the world. And he couldn't be a more different king. Right? The next slide, there's sort of a group of slides. I love this quote by... Uh, a theologian, Michael Green, he says, the note of contrast is strongly emphasized in this short account. There's the contrast between Herod's kingship and that of Jesus. One is inaugurated by Rome, an alien power and based on aggression and cruelty. The other originating from love, shown in vulnerability and entering into its kingdom through the cross. Herod's 33 at his inauguration, and Jesus is at the same age when he died. What a contrast. Matthew underlines particularly the contrasting responses to Jesus. We've seen how the Magi pursued what they knew to be the utmost of their powers and made an act of obsolescence and dedication that takes our breath away. It's obedience and dedication. Those wise men of Sodom wholeheartedly, wise men and women still do, but over against them stood Herod and the Jewish clergy. Herod's response was hatred and fear, hatred of anything or anyone that threatened his self-centeredness and fear of possible rival, however improbable. The lust for power blunted the better qualities in Herod's character. Herod built great things. He had lots of money. Like he, There were things that he did that was good for Israel. And yet, his lust for power, his, his hatred, it blunted those qualities. And power still has this corrupting tendency today. Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russian, Saddam's Iraq, Milosevic's Serbia show the length to which self-seeking can go against what known is to be right. And how many names could we add to that list? Jesus comes as a king born in poverty, born in weakness. He doesn't get a royal pronouncement from any kind of nation or his own people, but he gets a heavenly army that declares good news to the lowliest of shepherds. Shepherds are worse than the lowliest of lowly, like shepherds in that day couldn't give testimony in court because their character couldn't be counted on. And that's who God says, yeah, they'll be my witnesses. 
that's, that's his royal acceptance party at his birth. And the earthly King Herod paces throughout this palace of gold, and he's in a panic. And it's important that we recognize and that we preach that, that Advent, this is not a children's story. That, that God came into the world threatening the powers that be, and he still is. And that when we faithfully live for Jesus, that we should live resistant to the Herods of our day and serve a very different king and kingdom. And so the context that Jesus comes to us in this year, every year, is different, right? We said we don't have a Herod, we have presidents, but we do have this economy and we do have this consumer culture that has discipled us. We, have the, do, we do have this deceptive type of empire that on its surface seems like it's for us. Like, who doesn't like more things? Who doesn't, like, look at the Black Friday ads and go, awesome, right? I mean, I, w- I like to buy my stuff on, myself stuff on Black Friday, personally. Like, why shop for others? I see things I like, honestly. And to be the kind of Christian that's like, I'm going to go you know, to Best Buy, and I'm going to buy a big screen TV and a surround sound. I'm going to spend thousands of dollars, and then I'm going to complain that you didn't say Merry Christmas, and I'm going to call that prophetic. That's just like, that's a Herod Christmas special, right? That's what that is. So what does it look like for us to resist and take back our story? Like, what if we resisted this empire of scarcity that believes I don't have enough? I have to trample over people at Walmart or Best Buy to get the thing, because if I don't get the thing, then my kid's not going to believe that I love them and believe that I have a God who has said there is enough. That I have enough, that we have enough, that I live in a kingdom of abundance, not scarcity. What does it mean to live into our story that isn't a story of overconsumption that, that tells us I don't have to go into debt this Christmas? That you can give meaningful gifts and wonderful gifts without spending tons of money. We had people who were making coffee or buying bags of coffee and giving them to their mom or their grandma and saying, I just want to, this is so that we can make coffee and I want to sit down and I want to hear about your life one afternoon. I mean, can you imagine how the grandmother felt about that gift? Or, like, a sweater that she probably doesn't like. Or a tie or a scarf or, you know, all those weird things that we get for people or that they get for you. No, you don't get those things? What if, 
What if you lived in the freedom of Jesus's kingdom and, and instead of going into debt, you could spend less so that you actually could worship fully and there was more of you to give. You weren't frantic. And so that collectively we could love more people locally and globally. What if we spent less so we could worship more? Now, I know some of us hear this, right? And we have a little Herod panic in our hearts. Like, ah, that sounds good. The first year we did this, people were like, our, our kids are going to kill us, right? First, you took away the guy in the red suit. Now you're taking away presents. Like, this Christian thing's a real bummer. Um, but can I tell you, like, in 15 years, our kids have led the way in this. Our kids have taught us how this really works. They understand this. They raise the money for it. They know how to care for the poor. There's something about them understanding that, hey, it's Jesus' birthday, and Jesus said, if you want to give them a present, give it to people like this. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. They're probably confused when they get an Xbox, and they're like, it's Jesus' birthday. And they're like, hmm. Cool. <laughs> like, what do I care? I got an Xbox. Um, they get it. And so you don't have to freak out. They will teach you. If someone was able to look at our bank accounts, and this terrifies me, just so you know. I hate when I come up with illustrations that terrify me. And they were open before someone. What story would our bank accounts tell about our worship? Would they look more like a Herod worship? Or would they tell a Jesus story? What kingdom would they represent? Now, I know we have to live in Herod's kingdom. So there's a lot that we can't control about that. But there is a lot we can control. Because the truth is, we have a God who actually can see our checkbooks, which is a bummer. I mean, I, I got like one of those RIF or whatever things, you know, the metal things, like you can't scan it, but I think he can see through it. Even, even has my password, I bet. And so... What does it mean to begin to, for like four weeks to go, I will live prophetically. I will resist this empire for these four weeks. You know, giving the last few years at Imago, we missed the end of year giving by the exact same amount we brought in for Advent Conspiracy. Which tells us that we're probably just robbing Peter to pay Paul and still go into Herod's party. And, and what I am calling all of us back to, including myself, is that I think what, the only person we're robbing is ourselves. Because we're missing out on the worship. Again, this isn't about did we do good or bad? Did we resist or not resist? It's did you get to worship fully? And as much as you worship at Herod's 
party, you miss out on Jesus' banquet. And so this year we're doing a reset, right? We go back to this better story. We go back to this life-giving story, this Jesus story, this advent of God's true king who changes everything. And it starts with resisting not Herod, but this consumption of more stuff that we think actually matters so that we can have more Jesus who we know is the ultimate king who changes everything. Spend less, give more. Learn to give relationally. Create memories and moments so that we can have space for Jesus and the people Jesus loves. And it takes faith, you know? Even as I talk about it, you realize, like, how would I do that? Is you got to believe that Jesus is better. But the good news is, he actually is. He actually is. So I want to pray for us before Mike comes up and we take communion. Because this baby that was born was born not just to be good, but to die and to rise and to reign. And he reigns today as he will forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today just confessing freely to you that it is so easy for us to be deceived to believe that that we'll be happier if we have more, to believe that stuff can save us, that we can be soothed or safe or secure if we buy more, that our kids will feel more loved, that people will feel more loved, and that we have bought into this Herodian lie that somehow this story equals that story. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to set us free, the freedom to know that, that simply giving ourselves to another is gonna be a better gift, that love is better than stuff, and that, Jesus, you would set us free to truly resist, to spend less so that we could give not only ourselves but the amount of money we don't spend that we could set it aside so that collectively, God, we could display your kingdom in places in this world where hell has sought to kill and to steal and to destroy that you can bring life and bring it abundantly. And we want to partner with you in that. So would you come, Holy Spirit, into this place? Would you set us free? And above all, 
would we at the end of this Advent season be able to say that we have worshipped you in the fullness of what that means, that we have tasted more of you, that we have seen more of you, that we have experienced you in new and fresh ways. It wouldn't just be another Christmas, but we will have known the living King. And we pray all these things in your reigning and risen name. Amen.